You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, listeners. James Abbott here, and a very warm welcome. Warm being the operative word. Because in London these days, we've had some heat, I have to say. So I'm going to bring you some more heat in our Middle East Analysis podcast. Yes, record temperatures, over 40 degrees, in fact, in recent times here in the UK. Far more in keeping with the Middle East, North Africa, Gulf states. These are temperatures that I'd associate with the region, quite frankly. But here to cool us down a bit with his usual stylish, sharp analysis, is my good friend, the international lawyer, regional analyst and hat wearer of many other professional titles, Dr. Harry Hagopian. Are you going to cool us down, Harry? James, I don't think anything to do with the Middle East, North Africa and the Gulf region would cool down any listener, but I'll sure give it a jolly good try. Excellent. Now, what else could we talk about? It's been a while. It's been a bit longer than than a month for us. But we'll talk about the four-day visit of US President Joe Biden to the region. And we'll split that up a bit. We'll talk about Jerusalem. We'll talk about the West Bank, Bethlehem. And we'll also talk about Jeddah in Saudi Arabia and what each component of, of that visit actually meant. Now, for a man who spent years chairing the US Senate's Foreign Relations Committee, some are saying that foreign policy is a nice, comfortable area for him. Well, remains to be seen whether this trip did anything particularly positive in that sense. But it has been pilloried in some quarters, Harry, actually, as being a little bit low on substance, a few photo opportunities. One headline I read declared it nothing short of a disaster, which could be a little strong. So let's cut through the fist bumps and the the headlines. Was this a charm offensive towards Israel? Was it motivated by the energy crisis and energy security? Have to say something about the Iran nuclear file, I think, as well. Or was it motivated by something else? Mr. I'm not a prophet. What say you? Well, James, that was a brilliant introduction. I liked it. And uh, thank you very much for hosting another one of our monthly Middle East analysis programs. I enjoy it for all that it offers, from the light moments to the very serious moments. Give me a fist bump, Harry. There you go. Carry on. Fist bumps. Yeah, the fist bump became the, the trademark of how the Jeddah meeting started. But before we go to Jeddah, we have to first tackle Israel and then Palestine or Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Hmm. Uh, you know, you said a lot of things about why U.S. President Joe Biden undertook this short trip. What you didn't add is that he also had in mind the U.S. midterm congressional elections, and he had to be careful to appeal to the electorate in uh, the U.S. because the Democrats, who are just about clinging to Congress, are expected to get quite a severe drubbing. And what he's trying to do is to sort of say, look, I'm your man and don't let go of the Democrats because we have an agenda and don't let the other group or the other party take it over. And it's interesting because that pretty much defines the United States today, divided country. It's not a United States of America. It's the states of America that are disunited. So, yes, I mean, uh, 
He wanted to make all these points. He wanted to show how much of a self-avowed Zionist he is. When he said that, I think once or twice this time round, he'd already said it in the past, he showed his love and admiration for Israel time and time again, so much so that at some stage it became a little bit too maudlin and a bit over the top. I mean, I thought to myself, okay, we got it. You love the country. You've been here so many times. You know the Prime Minister Golda Meir all the way to the caretaker Prime Minister Yair Lapid. So Mm. fine, we've got it. Can we now talk a little bit more about issues? And I think the analysts and the observers who reported and then commented on the four-day visit to all three parts were, interestingly enough, divided into those who thought it was a brilliant and successful visit versus those who thought that it was a totally wasted four days. And of course, it depends on your point of view. It depends who's paying your check. It depends who is the person listening to you. So I would say personally, in order to be understanding of why the president came to the region for those four days, that it was not a total success by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly the bit that was hyped up in Jeddah with the Saudis and the rest of the uh, leaders who met with him. So not a success as one would have hoped, as he would have hoped, but also not a total failure, as some other people commented. It's somewhere in the middle. You have to take into consideration the fact that the whole region has been so much stigmatized by uh, the experience they had with the former U.S. President Donald Trump, that this was his first attempt at coming and correcting the course of events because he's trying in his own aging, geriatric, political way to alter the course and show that things are moving in a different direction now. And that was more evident in very cosmetic ways in uh, the Palestinian meetings he held in Bethlehem. It was also evident with the meetings in Jeddah, although they were not very productive. And as far as Israel is concerned, well, if you commit your unshakable, unwavering solidarity and support of Israel, there isn't really much you can say to that, is there? Geriatric politics. I do like that, actually. And also, well, you're not getting a check from us, are you, Harry? So No, I'm not getting a check at all from you. I'm just (laughs) getting the joy of doing a monthly chat with you, James. Well, you said somewhere in between then, not not a by any means a success, but not a total failure. So what could you deem as constructive, positive or dare I say it successful about the visit? Well, if you look at the Israeli side, I think from his point of view, given the electoral ebullition within Israel itself, now that there is another election uh, in November of this year, because Yair Lapid now is a caretaker uh, prime minister, and it was clear to me from the body language that Joe Biden and Yair Lapid were getting on quite well, mm-hmm. and they were desperately trying to show the world that they're getting on well. And Joe Biden, the last thing he would want during his mandate, which has got another two years plus, is to see Benjamin Netanyahu come back as prime minister. So one of the things he wanted to do is basically 
basically to uh, strengthen uh, Yair Lapid's camp for those elections in November, which are very iffy because there is every likelihood that given the conglomeration, given the coalition parties which are so disparate within Israel that Benjamin Netanyahu could actually come back and finally form a government and regain his position as prime minister. So that was one of the things that I think he was doing. Another one was to try and reassure the Israelis who are very paranoid about Iran and about the JCPOA non-nuclear agreement to try and reassured them that it would not be done at the expense of Israel and that Joe Biden and the West, that is to say uh, the Western countries, are well aware of the pitfalls, but that they want this uh, deal to go through because it is better to have Iran within an agreement than to let it loose outside an agreement. So that's another thing that he was uh, uh, trying to do. And then, of course, he was uh, probably talking a bit about the situation in the region and also the Ukraine war, which impacts Israel one way or another, because Israel, which is supposed to be the U.S.'s closest ally, mm. I mean, we heard that a zillion times during his couple of days in Jerusalem, that uh, it has been a little bit careful how to uh, express itself or voice an opinion because, of course, on the one hand, it wants to be supportive of uh, uh, the Ukraine, but at the same time, it's got interests and it's got a Jewish community in uh, Russia. And more importantly, Russia allows Israel to do its almost weekly attacks and bombings of uh, uh, Hezbollah and Iranian and Syrian bases in Syria, which it could never do if the Russians tell him, no, you're not allowed to do this. So all this was part and parcel of what was happening in Israel and what was happening in Jerusalem. But did anything more happen? No, I don't think the Israelis got what they wanted in terms of key commitments from the U.S., nor did the U.S. manage to get what it wanted entirely from the Israelis. So it was one of those, oh, we love each other. I'm a Zionist. You're a Zionist. Uh, let's sit here and talk. We go to Yad Vashem. We go to the presidential palace, meet with Isaac Herzog, the, uh, the, the president. We do a few things. We discuss things, and then we leave. But then in 2018... The then president, Donald Trump, closed that independent U.S. consulate, didn't he, in Jerusalem? And there was some thinking that Biden would be in favor of reopening that, offering a sort of de facto U.S. embassy to Palestinians. But that wasn't mentioned at all, was it? I was quite surprised there wasn't some sort of comment on that. Is that because he's trying to uphold this, you know, friendship towards Israel and not rock the boat too much? Well, I would have included that in the second station of our conversation when we came to Bethlehem and Palestine, because the consular issue is more a Palestinian issue mm. than an Israeli issue. But I do understand why you raise it now, because Israel is against reopening the consulate. It says no, because for it, it is its eternal capital, and it doesn't want to have a consulate there, a U.S. consulate that is focused entirely on Palestinian interests. And in a sense, I can understand practically that given that uh, President Trump also 
brought the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to mm. Jerusalem, you can't legally and practically in political reality, you can't have an embassy and next to it a consulate. A consulate is usually in a different part of a country from where geographically an embassy of any country is. Mm. So for instance, the Western powers, the UK, France, Germany, everybody, they have their embassies in Tel Aviv and they have a consulate which takes care of Palestinian and occupied territory interests in Jerusalem. That is not the case in, uh, in, uh, in the US. Uh, example and therefore the uh, the Israelis were dead set against it. The Americans and Biden during during his campaign had said a lot of things about not only uh, reopening the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. Incidentally, it's a beautiful consulate. Was a beautiful consulate mm -hmm. in a very nice part of uh, Jerusalem that I know quite well, and uh, that. I didn't think the Israelis wanted it, but also equally what they didn't want to see happen and which hasn't happened yet, that the PLO mission in Washington, D.C., which Trump also closed and sent the Palestinian head of mission packing with his family from Washington and ended up being the head of mission in the U.K. in London, just off uh, Hammersmith. They didn't want, the Israelis didn't want that to be opened again. And he's kind of forgotten that too. So everything that's done, and I'm now gradually shifting from Israel to Palestine, mm. because in Israel it was a love fest, yeah. a love fest that covered certain disagreements. And those disagreements were covered under the pretense of, oh, we are such close allies but when you come to the Palestinian side, the main issues that the Palestinians wanted never happened. All that happened is just giving them, it's almost biblical, you invite people to a big meal and then whatever scraps or crumbs of bread fall on the floor, you give it to the people who come there, the squatters or the poor people. And in a sense, that's what happened. The Israelis were Biden's apple of his eye. When it came to the Palestinians, no consulate reopening, no PLO mission, no anything of that nature. What he did do is at least, unlike Trump, he did not consider the Palestinians as an inexistent or non-existent people. He went to Bethlehem. He had a meeting longer than expected uh, with the uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, they talked about various things. He has reinstated American financial support to the United Nations Relief Agency, UNRWA, yeah. which is important. Equally important when he was in Jerusalem, he went and visited the Augusta Victoria Hospital and the Mount of Olives, which is run by the Lutheran Feder World Federation. And it is one of a network of six hospitals in Jerusalem, which are focused on Palestinian needs. He gave a lot of money to them, and they needed that money because they were running out of money. The Palestinian Authority had run out of money, so he couldn't pay the salaries of the people working in those hospitals. And all those patients, including the cancer patients from Gaza and the West Bank who come to Augusta Victoria in Jerusalem for treatment, couldn't be treated because the hospital no longer had the money to bring in the equipment and the medication and the radiotherapy and the chemotherapy and all that. So he did these things. He did what is 
is easy to do, mm. and he's been very good at this. He throws money right, left, and center. He gave them money as if to say, here, have this money, and then half grudgingly, he sort of mentioned the two-state solution. I say half grudgingly because Yair Lapid mentioned it once, and he didn't say it half grudgingly. He just said it grudgingly. It was almost like he was forced to say it. But then whether grudgingly or half grudgingly, the two-state solution is so passé, so obsolescent, so impractical, particularly if the E1 colonization yeah. process uh, goes forward, that uh, there's no point in talking about the two-state uh, well, solution. the impossibility of a contiguous state. I mean, we've kind of given up on it a bit, haven't we, on this podcast? We have given up uh, on the two-state solution because I can't see the two-state solution. But be- for lack of any other solution, the West, whether that's the Euro- European Union or the United States now, because during Trump's time, we came to a stage where the Palestinians didn't even exist. That's true. Biden has re-energized at least the existence of the Palestinians. But where would that take us? I don't know. And the man was in Bethlehem. He's a very committed Catholic. He went to the Basilica of the Nativity, a Franciscan priest. They are the custodians of the Holy Land took him around. I know him well. It was quite funny seeing him with the president. Uh, Went and showed him around. So yes, he did his tourism in Bethlehem. And he had a few words with uh, Abu Mazen or uh, President Mahmoud Abbas. And that was it for Israel. And that was it for uh, the Palestinian territories. Now that he's back, did he satisfy the left of center wing of the Democratic Party who's saying, hold on, what about uh, Masafer Yatta in Hebron, Mm. all those places that are being demolished and the people are being transferred? Did we do anything about it? He probably doesn't even know about that. Did we do anything about the murder of Shirin Abu Akleh after that half-silly statement that came from the United uh, States about Oh, well, we're not too sure how she was killed, but probably an Israeli bullet. And if it were an Israeli bullet, it was definitely an unintentional bullet. It was lamenting a stray bullet. Exactly. So did he do anything about Shirin Abu Akleh? No. The Mm. family of Shirin Abu Akleh, her uh, brother Anton, her niece uh, Lina and others. They wanted to meet with him. They wanted to meet with him. Exactly. And he didn't meet with them. But the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said that I'll invite them to Washington to come and uh, meet with us there. So Shirin Abu Akleh, no headway. Masafer Yatta, no headway. Colonization stopping? What's stopping? Since he's left, and it's only been, what, one week, two weeks? They're already going, destroying houses and expanding settlements. The whole constitution of the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict is so skewed, so awry, so untenable, that all this talk about the peace process, what peace process? I mean, Mm. let us call a spade and spade and say there is no peace process and there is nobody at the moment other than the long-suffering Palestinians who are worried about the peace process because they're the ones who are feeling the pain, the oppression, the apartheid system 
on their shoulders day in, day out. Other than that, the Israelis are very fine the way they are. The Americans are too busy with either domestic issues or now Ukraine, or if not Ukraine, something else. And the Arab countries, well, we'll come to Jeddah, but the Arab countries, as far as I'm concerned, are AWOL after uh, the Arab initiative, which uh, 20 years ago said Israel recognizes the Palestinian state and then all Arab countries would recognize Israel. So it was a quid pro quo that was made by the Saudi initiative in Beirut at one of the Arab League meetings. What came out of it? We've almost uh, forgotten this. So what do we see? We see uh, Mahmoud Abbas go to France a couple of days ago to meet with uh, President Emmanuel Macron to tell him, look, don't let the EU... Uh, forsake us or forget us. Well, Emmanuel Macron has a huge problem uh, in his own government because he doesn't have a majority in parliament. So what is he going to do? He's no longer the president of the EU either. So in a sense, that is, I don't know where that's going to go. And then a very prominent member of the PLO now that uh, Mahmoud Abbas has promoted went to Qatar to tell the Qataris, listen, if we ditch the security agreements with Israel, if we say that the whole uh, conflict has tanked, will you continue giving us money? There is nothing there. There is nothing there. Usually when you talk about a solution, when you talk about conflict resolution, you say a conflict peaks and that's when you strike a deal. How many times has the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict peaked and we still haven't managed to strike a deal? Because I think the foundations aren't even there to start the conversation, are they? That's that's part of the problem. Absolutely. Now, you did say that the Israel component was something of a love fest, and I don't think anyone can particularly disagree with that. But I do wonder if even the Israelis were particularly happy, because a lot of those long list of strategic cooperation agreements that appeared in the Jerusalem Declaration, they were kind of already on the cards, weren't they? I mean, I don't think anything happened that was sort of groundbreaking and... I kind of wonder whether the Israelis were particularly satisfied. You know, isn't this what they'd expect of a U.S. president anyway, Democrat or Republican? You're absolutely right. The Jerusalem Declaration, and there was so much fanfare about this declaration with them signing it and the television cameras were uh, focused on them. It's a rehash of everything else that the Americans and the Israelis have done together, which is why I said that on the Iran issue, which is the key issue for Israelis, they didn't come to an agreement. But having said that, in my opinion, Israel remains the spoiled kid of the United States. And let's take one thing. I mean, when we look at what is happening in Congress within Democratic Party, forget the Republicans. As far as I'm concerned, they're lost cause at the moment. But when you look at the Democrats, you have two wings. You have the old Democrats and you have the younger, new uh, Democrats that have come in. And they have been doing a lot. They've been making a lot of noises about Shirin Abu Akhli, about settlements, about everything. Mm. So have the Jewish American uh, constituencies in the United States. I mean, everybody, when you talk about the Israelis, we used to say, oh, AIPAC. And AIPAC is 
lock, stock and barrels sold on Israeli superiority and forget the Palestinians. Now you've got organizations like J Street, which are basically entirely different and they're more inclusive of the Palestinians. But what is happening, this is the new generation and it's a generational change that the Americans, I believe, are beginning very, very slowly and painfully to experience. And the experience is so slow and painful because it's very difficult for them to suddenly change a script that they've been following so loyally and faithfully for so long, number one. Number two, the country itself is so divided, so painfully and dangerously divided. I mean, they've been doing hearings to show that uh, President Donald Trump was complicit with the attack on the, the Capitol Hill. So in a sense, it doesn't work. And for me, I didn't really expect uh, Joe Biden to really go there and do any earth-shattering declarations or changes in policy. Why? One, he's weak at home. Two, he doesn't have the mandate uh, to do it because he will not be supported. And three, when he kept saying, I'm a Zionist and I don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist, it's because he's, uh, what, 80 plus or 79 yeah. or whatever. Knocking on 80. Knocking on 80. He is one of the old God, and the old mm. God think that way. Now you have to uh, start asking people in their 40s and 50s what do they think, and that is when the change might kick in. But then you would be very right to tell me, Harry, you're trying to find some light in a dark room. And well, what I'll else can you, you do? And I'll tell you, yes, but light a candle, the brightest part of the candle is its base. Now, I'm not going to bring Saudi Arabia into this particular point, but my, my little postscript on, on this segment of Middle East analysis is, are these not, in a sense, Israel, Palestine, lame duck leaders, in that they're potentially treading water before big changes, you know, new people coming in. Is that part of the reason that none of the big ticket stuff was addressed? Yes, there is a bit the conviction as well as lame duck leaders. I agree with you. I mean, you've got a Palestinian leader who is way, way past his expiry date by 10, 15 years. You've got an Israeli political situation where there is no leader because they keep changing leaders. I mean, after years and years of Netanyahu, uh, Bennett managed to come largely through the efforts of Yair Lapid, if you ask me. Uh, and they were there and they managed to form the government not because they wanted to rule together. They just want to block Netanyahu from becoming prime minister again. Yeah. That's not reason enough to run a country. So there is no, and even this election in November, uh, nobody knows, and you said I'm no prophet, nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. And as far as the Americans are concerned, I mean, particularly after the midterm elections in November of this year, if the Republicans take over both houses, then as far as uh, Joe Biden is concerned, his goose is cooked. And therefore, yes, three uh, lame ducks in a sense. But what has also happened, if you want to focus on the Israel-Palestine conflict, James, is that I've known this conflict for quite a while. I've earned my stripes from this conflict. I used to speak with Palestinians. I used to speak with Israelis. That was my strength. As an Armenian, I used to view myself in the middle turning right and speaking with one group, turning left, speaking with another group. Now, I know where my political allegiance goes because I'm for peace and justice. And it's very clear for anybody who's got just a 
modicum of objectivity to know who's the underdog and who's not. But having said that, since I became involved with this process and with the second track negotiations during the maligned Oslo period, I have noticed that from Yitzhak Rabin onward, the Israeli right has become ultra-right. The Israeli center has become the right, and the Israeli left has become the center. So there is no left anymore if you consider that the left is more supportive of a peace process. And I'm not too sure about that because for years we had labor governments which are traditionally in Israel left of center and nothing really uh, happened. There are no Abaibans these days. There are no people who could sort of say there aren't even people like Yitzhak Rabin, who on the one hand said he's going to break the bones of all Palestinians on an intifada, but on the other hand, he knew that the future of Israel, let alone that of Palestinians, which some Israeli politicians have compared to cockroaches, uh, that it's in coexistence. This doesn't exist. There is the ultra-right and there is the right, and somewhere there are a few center people like uh, Yair Lapid tries to portray uh, himself. But that is uh, that is all there is at the moment. And if you look at this one-year cabinet that uh, uh, Bennett ran as prime minister, you had a coalition of the oddest nature there, from Meretz on the extreme left to people on the extreme right, Gideon Saar and others who used to be Likudniks and who left Likud, not because they espoused the center, but because they couldn't stand Netanyahu. What happened? Nothing. Meretz, what did it do? Nothing. An Arab group suddenly joined because they decided, you know what? Forget the Palestinian issue. Now let's go in there and see what's in it for us. And if we can get some money for our community, then that's fine. The whole thing is as far as I'm concerned, shambolic. And aren't I happy that I'm no longer institutionally involved with any of this mess? I think I need a lie down. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's, it's oh, kind of stressful even talking about it, really, when looking for any degree of hope and potential for peace. Can we, though, start fist bumping and move across to Jeddah? You know, I say that tongue in cheek, but really that picture of President Joe Biden fist bumping with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is pretty iconic. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised that that's the main takeaway rather than whether he'd got anywhere in ramping up oil production in light of the Ukraine crisis. And I think there was that declaration, wasn't there, to the Arab Leaders Summit that the United States is not going anywhere and we will not walk away to leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia or Iran, and we will seek to build on this moment with active, principled American leadership. Not quite sure what that means, but nonetheless, all we remember is the fist bumping. Well, that declaration, it goes on and on and on. There is nothing under the sun that was not covered by that declaration. I mean, the people who got there in that famous conversation they had with what I call the six plus three. Why do I call it six plus three? Because there are six Gulf Cooperation Council countries, and there are the other three who were invited to attend, namely Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. 
So these people, these nine, met there and they talked about everything from Syria to Lebanon to anything and everything under the sun was in that declaration. I mean, it is so nice and so easy to make big, impressive declarations. Uh, sometimes words are used when action is wanting. A little bit sketchy. Little bit sketchy is one way uh, of uh, putting it, and you're absolutely right. Which is why politicians have to be careful when a presidential candidate focuses his campaign on making promises. One of them being that he's never going to see MBS. He's going to make him a pariah. He's going to ignore him, etc., etc. And then suddenly the something unexpected happens. Putin decides that he wants to change the map of the world, and therefore the Americans suddenly say, oh, blimey, our economic measures aren't working. For the moment, the Russians are getting so much money from the oil that they're selling because the barrel of oil has gone way past the $100 for the Brent crude. So in a sense, you say, okay, look what happened. You said something, and now you basically had to come and... Uh, say almost regretfully, ruefully come back and do that f uh, fist uh, bump. And that fist bump has actually intrigued me. Because when he came down the plane in Ben-Gurion Airport in Jerusalem, he fist bumped with two or three of the people beating him. And that included Yair Lapid, the caretaker prime minister, and the president of the state of Israel, Herzog. And then suddenly the fist bump turned into handshakes. The same thing happened later when he met everybody at the Beit Hanasi, at the presidential uh, house, room, palace, whatever you want to call it, where he was choosing between fist bumps and handshakes. The same thing happened in uh, Saudi Arabia. A few fist bumps, including with the famous one with MBS himself, and then some handshakes. So I am intrigued, and I still haven't resolved that little puzzle uh, in my head. When did he choose to fist bump, yeah. put MBS on one, to one side, and when did he choose to shake hands? But yes, he had to do it. He basically had to uh, go back and uh, and talk to the man he had considered a pariah. But it's a lose-lose, isn't it? Because if you look at the, the health reason for fist bumping, which is to uh, avoid a sort of full handshake and therefore potentially avoid COVID, well, that didn't work. And if you also look at a fist bump as not wanting to formalise a handshake as a senior diplomat, then that didn't really work either for, for the reasons you're alluding to, such as... Jamal Hashogji and that murder, uh, that, that was a big deal. And should you be fist bumping with somebody you consider to have done that? Well, that is where you have to look at what uh, Lord Palmerston once said many, many years ago in this country, that countries do not have friendships. Countries have interests. And at the moment, he has midterm congressional elections. At the moment, he has an inflation which is slowly creeping up. At the moment, he needs to be sure that the price of gasoline for Americans whose cars pretty much gulp petrol, that they are not too upset with what is happening because his his popularity ratings are still lowest uh, than most other presidents at this stage. Yeah. And in a sense, 
he had to do it. So he did it, but the question is, did he actually manage to get anything done? I'm not sure. And the people in the United States are probably more furious with him than the people in the Middle East because you have a whole constituency of people who refuse to accept this business of uh, fist bumping or shaking hands with the crown prince or of going uh, there and making those uh, commitments. And if you, again, put the visible moves that were made of being together and talking together, I mean, he wanted two things. He wanted Saudi Arabia to open the spigot of oil a bit more to compensate for the oil that is not coming from Russia for the West. Mm. He wanted a sterner alliance between America and those countries who were there, the six plus three, against Iran. He wanted to introduce Israel much more clearly into the Arab world so that they become more visibly, at least. He was never going to broker a normalization with Saudi Arabia, was he? Exactly. He was probably thinking that he could pave the way for some of these things I've just mentioned. And of course, it didn't work because what happened, and this is key to the way things are happening. I told you a little while earlier, James, that in the United States, politics is generational. And at least if we forget the Republicans, because I genuinely think that the Republicans have a long way to go before they regain their political prowess, even though they're winning elections, but that's not an indication for me. The Democrats, it's generational, it's a new generation, etc., etc. When it comes to the MENA and Gulf regions, the oil didn't work. There is no promise yet to increase the flow of production of oil. There is no promise that the Saudis and the others would enhance normalization relations with the state of Israel. There is no promise that this integration, there is a beautiful Arabic word, damj, which means integration of Israel within the Arab corpus is not going to happen. I mean, so much so that they were saying, oh, what a wonderful idea that Saudi Arabia opened its airspace in order to allow him to fly directly from Tel Aviv to Jeddah. Yes, but Saudi Arabia then opened its airspace for all airlines, which basically said, which meant the message behind that was, it's not only for... There's nothing special about you. There's nothing special about you. So all this is happening. What does this tell you? This tells you that if you go back 20 years, American presidents and before them, Europe, were, but Europe at the moment uh, is, in a sense, I agree with Trump, it's the old uh, continent. The Americans asked for something and the Gulf countries and some of the Middle Eastern MENA countries provided. That no longer is. The idea of the Cold War, which was predicated on two superpowers, which then turned after the collapse of the wall and after the collapse of communism into a one-power solution, namely America, no longer is anymore. At the moment, you have 
no longer global superpowers, you have regional superpowers. You even have a few local superpowers. So people are doing regional deals rather than waiting for America to ask of them, do this, don't do that, etc., etc. It suits my purpose. I do it. It doesn't suit my purpose. I will not do it. And that is exactly the message that Joe Biden got from the GCC 6 plus 3 meeting, that at the moment, look at what happened. It's so telling. You had Saudi Arabia in that meeting. You had uh, Egypt in that meeting. You had Iraq in that meeting. The, the differences between those countries are remarkable. Iraq is pretty much a proxy ally of Iran. You had the Saudis who said, no, we're not sure we're going to do this, that, and the other. But interestingly enough, if you look at what followed immediately after the GCC 6 plus 3, what did we get? Iran, Turkey, and Russia having another summit in Tehran, Tehran yeah. in Iran. What does this mean? This means that Turkey now is a regional country for crying out loud, Turkey is a NATO ally, and yet it gets SS-400 missiles from uh, Russia. It negotiates with Russia about grain. How does it go out of the Ukraine because of the boycott and because the Ukrainians have uh, mined the Black Sea? Black sea how yeah. do they get it out? So Turkey is doing its own thing. Iran is still managing to do its own thing despite the incredible sanctions that are being applied against it. I really feel for the Iranian people. No wonder they're so sick and tired. No wonder that there are demonstrations. No wonder that food prices are rising astronomically in uh, Iran, so much so that the Eid al-Adha, which came just a couple of weeks ago, a lot of Iranians couldn't buy the foods and the gifts they wanted because they no longer can afford it. No wonder the Iranians are so fed up that there is a clear anti-hijab campaign happening in Iran now where Iranian women are throwing off the hijabs and saying we're fed up with this because the hijab, to be honest with you, and this strict uh, application of the hijab is not for religious purposes. It's for political purposes, to keep the dominance of the molacracy over the population. But they're so fed up with the prices, with everything not working properly, that they're saying enough is enough. Yet despite all that, you have Iranian leaders saying we are at the threshold of uh, getting the first nuclear uh, weapon. So Turkey is a regional power. Iran is a regional power, Israel is a regional power, and then you have a conglomeration of Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq coming together. These three have become buddies. They keep meeting every few uh, months to have uh, falafel. So in a sense, you see that the whole idea of, oh, you have the two superpowers, then you have the one superpower, doesn't work anymore. Europe doesn't count anymore. Europe is chasing, not leading. And then you have people where it is the tail wagging the dog, no longer the dog wagging the tail. So it's changing strategically. And this is something we have to get used to as we move forward as a new breed of politicians take over. And as the people in that part of the world say, you know, enough, enough. 
as one of my dearest friends and somebody whom I really, really admire, Rami Huri, who is an AUB lecturer, American University of Beirut, who spends a lot of time doing global conversations, as he constantly says, it's time for the Arab peoples, in the plural, to wake up and no longer be dictated to either by the so-called past superpowers or the present regional powers of their rulers. They have to do it themselves. They tried it in 2010, 2011. You and I spent a lot of time and a lot of airtime talking about that. It tanked. It tanked because it's one thing not to want something. It's another to know what you want in its place. And what you want in its place was not obvious. Lebanon is an example. Iraq is an example. Libya is an example. And then even in Yemen, look at it at the moment. There is stasis. Yes, there is a truce. Will it lead to a ceasefire? We'll wait and uh, see. The Houthis aren't going anywhere, nor are the others. So this is where we are in the geopolitical transfiguration of the country. A word I like a lot. I'll throw it in just to make you smile. Political metamorphosis. And the, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because you've got US presidents flying in, Russian presidents flying in. You've got that sort of superpower chess play over the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf states from a distance. And I'm just left thinking, how do we rate this particular visit of President Joe Biden? Because from what you've said, I think we'd be generous if it was a C minus. I would give it a C minus. I would be generous enough to give it a C minus, if for nothing else, for the fact that a 79-year-old who has some difficulty walking uh, actually made the trip and made an effort. And there are some places where you would see the genuineness of his statements, and I'm sure there were some, there was some headway, some movement, some motion. So at least the the total inertia that characterized Trump's era, that inertia in one sense and in the other sense, all this lopsided, megalomaniacal uh, policies that he was adopting, at least there is a corrective course there. But does that corrective course warrant giving him anything more than a C minus or, okay, let's be generous. Let's give him a C plus. Well, mm-hmm. he came Veni, he came, he vidi. saw, he did not conquer. Exactly. <laughs> Veni, vidi, but there is no vici. Yeah, very well said, Harry. Well, look, thank you very much for your analysis. F- absolutely fascinating because I watched from a distance and was struggling to get my head around the positives. I think we're clutching at straws when it comes to talking about the positives. But then, as you've pointed out, there's a certain inevitability as to how far he was going to go or not with some of these things. So... Thank you ever so much, Harry. Any final thoughts or are we calling it a day? Drink a lot of water because of the heat wave. (laughs) Good practical point there. (laughs) Harry, thank you very much. My pleasure, James, as always.